You may be seated. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but uh, you go into a restaurant and they hand you the menu and you are overwhelmed with the number of choices that you have. I mean, for some of us, this, this can actually just cause us to freeze. We get the deer in the menu headlights look on our faces and it's impossible. I mean, we just hate being made to choose, especially where there's so many different choices. I remember uh, the, the best meals I've ever had in my life, there was not a menu, they just brought me the food. You know, like Shatley Springs. Yes, amen. Some of y'all don't know about uh, the Holy Mountain, Shatley Springs, but uh, we'll take you there sometimes. You just go in and they bring you country ham and fried chicken and uh, cornbread and biscuits and green beans. Oh, it's so good. I'm too, I'm too hungry to preach now. Um, but we don't like being made to choose. It can be a very scary experience. But that is what's going on in James's little book here. James has got an agenda. He wants us to make up our minds. Make up our minds. He wants us to choose a side this morning. <clears throat> right at the beginning of the letter of James, this general letter, in chapter 1, verse 8, he tells us that the double-minded person, the double-minded, two minds, double-minded person is unstable in all that they do. And from that point, he begins to describe a series of very black and white choices and the disaster that results when we want to have things both ways, when we won't make a decision, <clears throat> we, when we want to straddle the fence. And we hear that pattern throughout the reading that Randy read for us this morning. In that passage, James says that we can have the wisdom that is either devilish or heavenly. There's no middle ground. We can seek our passions or seek God. You can't do both. Be a friend of the world or be an enemy of God. You can't, do, uh, you can't be a friend of the world and be a friend of God. But brothers and sisters, we are uncomfortable and maybe even a little resentful of being presented with such stark, dualistic choices. We hate having to choose sides. We don't like cutting off our options. We don't like to burn our bridges. We don't want to stake ourselves out and make commitments that limit us. We want to remain free so that if a better offer comes along, then we can make a switch. These yes and no decisions that James presents us with seem so final. They seem so, they seem so judgmental, so extreme. It's so negative, and it touches the very nerve of our generational disposition right now of the fear of missing out. It touches the nerve of the fear of missing out. Now, as James's first listeners, first readers actually, a Jewish Christian community, as James's uh, Jewish Christian community, James's readers are resonating. They're identifying with this call to choose because it reflects the times in Israel's history when they were called on to make a choice, as in Joshua's call to renew the covenant between God and Israel. Perhaps you're familiar from that with that passage from uh, Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. And if it is evil, Joshua says, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, 
Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A stark call to choose. And we need to take a look at the kind of decisions James calls us to in this passage. As we listen to James, hopefully, prayerfully, the Holy Spirit will reveal in our hearts, in my heart, in my life, your heart, your life, where we are being called on to choose sides. And as I went through this passage of Scripture this week and even this morning as I was preparing to preach, I heard the Holy Spirit calling on me to choose sides. Now, James begins with addressing those, listen, who want to be teachers and leaders. Are you ready? He's, te- he's addressing those who want to be teachers and leaders in the Jewish Christian community. And this first part of this passage is kind of technical. It's kind of didactic. And we're going to have to do a little bit of word study to get to the bottom of it this morning. So James writes this, verse 13, chapter 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, that doesn't seem very specific to us. Who is wise and understanding to you? But actually, that term, listen, the wise, wise was a technical term applied to rabbis and to scribes and teachers in James's Jewish context. So rabbis, scribes, teachers of the law. And likewise, the word for understanding is Uh, epistemon. The word for understanding is epistemon. It's the word we get uh, the term epistemology from. How do you know what you know? And it is technically referring to there, uh, there to someone who is an expert, an expert in the law, an expert teacher. So James is saying this, and we might think, well, I'm not a scribe, a rabbi, or anything like that, but listen, James is saying, who wants to be a rabbi, and who wants to be the expert among you? So we might think that um, we're not... We're not teachers or experts, but here it is. If we're going to have any leadership position in the church, we are called to hear this part of this passage. We could be teachers, we could be experts, but if we're going to have any leadership position in the church, this passage belongs to us. And it comes with some hard choices. And by the way, as your pastor, it applies first of all to me because I'm the chief teacher in this congregation. And so this is a word that as I read this, I can't think about all y'all people out there who want to be wise and understanding because it's about me first. So I have to hear this, and I have been hearing this this week. One of the choices that James presents us with here is the choice of adopting a a false wisdom. One choice is adopting a false wisdom, but if we do that, that disqualifies us from teaching or leading in God's household. And in fact, such false wisdom brings chaos and disorder into the body of Christ. So listen up, all right? So not only does it apply to me as a pastor, if you you are a life group leader, if you are a servant team leader, if you are a clergy person, if you're staff on the shepherd team, all of this applies to you and me. But if you, this is what he says in verse 14, speaking to those leaders. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, 
unspiritual, and of the devil. Tell us what you think about it, James. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, listen to this, you will find disorder and every evil practice or every vile practice. Now, that term, listen, selfish ambition, selfish ambition literally speaks of a self-seeking attitude bent on gaining advantage and prestige for oneself and for one's group. It's a false wisdom revealed in selfish ambition that demonstrates self-promotion, self-promotion. This is why we have Facebook, self-promotion. Think about it. It's your very own marketing firm. My life is amazing. My kids are amazing. What I eat is amazing. Here's a picture of it. <laughs> the one who has embraced false wisdom is obsessed and with whom gets the credit for every perceived accomplishment. So that's one of the things that James is identifying here. Selfish ambition. Who gets the... Who gets the who gets the credit for the accomplishment? Who gets prestige for oneself and one group? And, you know, I would have to say, if I'm, just, uh, if I'm thinking about our church in, in total here, I don't think that maybe this is a very big driver for a lot of us. Now, I've been in churches, maybe in certain academic communities where there are buku of, of Southern Ivy League institutions, um, where this is a big deal, piling up those letters and, and who gets to be first letters behind your name. But this isn't one of those places, perhaps, but maybe it is for some of us. But then he comes to this. He comes to this world, a world, word envy. Uh, that word envy or jealousy is more fully translated as bitter, self-directed zeal. Bitter, self-directed zeal. Again, this zeal desires to put itself forward. As zeal, and listen, it is insatiable. You can't ever fill up the hole. We need to really attend to this. There is a desire for recognition, a desire for approval, a desire to be, um, to be counted worthy that is an unfillable desire. It is an, it's like a black hole that you can never give enough accolades to. Are you listening? You can never, uh, you can never give enough attaboys to to fill that hole up. It's still right there in the center of our hearts. It is, it is insatiable, and it always seeks to gain a new position or a new attainment or a new set of credentials or a new statement of approval and, or, you know, or a new plaque or whatever. It can also be manifest, and this is where we often see it, it can also be manifest in bitter jealousy that, oh, please, please let this sink in. A bitter jealousy... In fact, you can just leave off the word jealousy. Maybe bitter helps a little bit. That cannot bear for someone else to be recognized. It is, now I'm going to use a technical theological term, so you need to get ready for this. It is frequently butthurt. <laughs> yeah, I just said that. Over feeling slighted. And if someone else gets recognized, it feels slighted. For this, this characteristic, it is a zero-sum game. If anyone else is increasing, then by necessity I am decreasing. 
Now, I'm going to psychologize a little bit here based on study and three decades of pastoral experience. Many times in the church, envy and selfish ambition are driven by a desperate search for significance, a insatiable search for significance. And in my experience, this desperate search for significance many times, in fact, maybe frequently, comes from a serious childhood parental wound that remains unhealed and unresolved. Wounds that have been inflicted by the constantly berating and belittling parent. The critically perfectionistic parent. The sexually, verbally, or physically abusive parent. The absent parent. Many times, create a void in the life of a child that is a desperate search for significance. Now, those who suffer from such a wound frequently lack self-awareness as to how this is actually and constantly controlling their emotions and how it is crippling and poisoning their interpersonal relationships in every aspect of their lives, in their families, at work, and yes, indeed, at church. And what is required in such a situation is, first of all, self-awareness, praying that the Holy Spirit will open my eyes to that. And then, believe it or not, even though we are wounded by the experience, we need to repent. Hear what I'm about to say. This is the wickedness of sin. Are you ready? Not only does sin wound other people, it infects other people. So that the one who has been violated, the one who has been abused, the one who has received the wound often responds because we all have a sinful human nature. Our frequent, in fact, I would say our standard response is to compensate in another sinful way. We compensate for the wound that was done to us out of someone else's sin by our own human sinfulness. And so not only is self-awareness needed, and here's the hard word, and I want you to know, I've had to deal with this myself. The hard word is not only do we have to become self-aware, oh my goodness gracious, that is me. And, and to get to that point, you can't be doing this with your life. La, 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 that's not me. You can't be turning up the volume of your inner dialogue so that you can't be challenged on this point. So self-awareness given as a grace of the Holy Spirit, followed by repentance. In other words, we, my, in, in my woundedness, what do I want to do? I want to just lie down in it, wallow around in it, cuddle it up, pet it, hold it close, never let it go, because that's who I am. But really what God is calling us to is the dangerous and frightening project of repenting for how my woundedness has been revealed and manifest in my own sinfulness. And finally, along with repentance, is this is Bible. Where am I getting this from? The Bible. <laughs> this is straight from the scriptures. And that is followed by confession, agreeing with God as to the state 
of my wicked, sinful heart. Wow, that sounds really reformed. You're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> I, did, I did accept John Calvin into my heart. So. <laughs> we need to repent so that we can receive the healing and restoration that we need. Now, this false wisdom is unspiritual, and it reflects the unregenerate, fallen human nature. In other words, if those qualities, as I just indicated, are actually being expressed, perhaps, and most frequently, dominating our relationships and lives, we talk religious talk and act like heathens. We talk religious talk and act unsaved. So ultimately, James says that this is of the devil. It's of the devil, ultimately is demonic in, in origin. One commentator says that it, its source, this false wisdom source, is not God but the devil. It produces the kind of situation in which the devil delights, in which the devil delights in, not God. And the fruits, James says of this, are bitter zeal, uh, uh, the fruits of bitter zeal and selfish ambition are, here's what he says. He says it's disorder and every vile or every evil practice. That Greek word translated disorder refers to technically breakdown in the life of any community, to anarchy, to political turmoil. There is confusion about leadership. There's general disharmony within the body politic. And that also is transferable, and James is using it, related to the church. And he's saying this, your envy and ambition inevitably disorder the entire life of the Christian community. My problem doesn't stay with me. It affects everyone. I, I poison the community that I come in contact with. If this is unresolved, it is poisonous. It is toxic. James says it results in every evil work. Evil in the sense of worthless, trifling activity that bears no lovely fruit. It looks busy, but they are deeds that are bad because they are good for nothing, and they never produce any real lasting benefit. Uh, with, no matter how much religious mayonnaise you slather on top of it, it's still going to produce something that is worthless. So those of us who would be leaders and teachers must choose between false self-promoting wisdom or the wisdom that comes from God. And here's what James says about this. This is the alternative. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, peacemaking, gentle. And by the way, I, I have prayerfully just lived in this passage this past week. And I mean, I, because I kind of think sometimes maybe God maybe gave me a little bit of wisdom, and then I'm starting to read through these, these characteristics. I'm saying, ooh, ooh, wait a second. Maybe not. Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Godly wisdom is above all pure. That is pure in motive, set apart to God alone. It has no sinful, selfish motivation. It is not motivated by our woundedness or brokenness. It has no hidden hypocritical agenda. And the fruit of such wisdom is peace in the body of Christ and right relationships. That's how you can diagnose the wisdom from above. But James doesn't just stay with teachers. He moves on beyond teachers to every believer in James chapter 4. Let me read a few of these verses here. James 4, 1 through 3. 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, does he mean he, people are going around killing each other in his church? No, he's thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about, you know, when you, when you hate someone or when you speak evil with someone, it's like murdering them verbally. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So our own lack of inner peace as well as disunity or antagonism in our families or even in the body of Christ comes, James says, from the passions. So what are those passions? I don't know what you're talking about, James. You're going to have to clue me in. Well, basically, our passions, yes, they can be the sinful desires that drive us away from the love of God, but they also can be just, they can be God-given appetites, but these are disordered appetites, disordered desires, disordered affections, disordered agendas lodged in our sinful nature that are actually warring against each other. They battle within each other's. With, against each other within us. And so English author Francis Spufford writes this, You are a being whose wants make no sense. Don't harmonize. Whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to at the very same time. You're equipped, you realize, more for farce or even tragedy than for happy endings. So in the final analysis, our hearts are divided between two things, between pleasing God and pleasing ourselves. Y'all, this is critical Christian teaching, foundational Christian teaching, between pleasing God and pleasing ourselves. We cannot do both. St. Augustine said, You stir man to take pleasure in praising you. Now this is what he says, and many of us know this quote, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Until our hearts truly, fully, and only desire God, our hearts are restless. But this problem runs through the church. We want to please God, but we also want to please ourselves. And we cannot do both. Many years ago, the late psychologist and author Daniel Yankelevich, and by the way, he, he became so depressed and actually nihilistic, he eventually took his own life. But he very uh, presciently and poignantly identified this uh, conflicted existence that many of us live. He, he had a fictional couple that he called Mark and Abby. I've actually read you this quote long ago. But it's an archetypal couple. This fictional couple stands in for so many people. And he says of Mark and Abby, if you feel it is imperative to fill all your needs... And if these needs are contradictory or in conflict with those of others, or simply unfillable, then frustration inevitably follows. To Mark and to Abby, self-fulfillment means having a career and marriage and children and sexual freedom and autonomy and being liberal and having money and choosing nonconformity and insisting on social justice and enjoying city life and country living, and simplicity, and graciousness, and reading, and good friends, and on, and on, and on. 
The individual is not truly fulfilled by becoming ever more autonomous, he writes. Indeed, to move too far in this direction is to risk psychosis, the ultimate form of autonomy. The injunction, injunction that to find oneself one must lose oneself contains the truth any seeker of self-fulfillment needs to grasp. Now, James gets this emphasis on, on not having a divided heart. He gets it straight from the Lord Jesus. In fact, I think much of, of James, of the book of James, is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Read those side by side sometime and see if you agree. I, I, I'm probably not the first person to think that, but it seems to be that way. And so in, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In other words, hear me, the human heart is only large enough for one great defining love. There's going to be something that we love that will define us. Soren Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. Now here, listen, here's the good news, here's the gospel in this. That the counterintuitive truth is that if we seek God first, this is Matthew 6, 33. If we seek God first, then we will find ourselves genuinely satisfied, genuinely fulfilled, and genuinely at peace. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now, these divided loyalties are, James says, again, he, you know, if you didn't get a good spiritual punch in the face recently, go back and read James again. I mean, he's just like, man, can you soften this up a little bit? But he says that these divided loyalties are the spiritual equivalent of adultery, the spiritual equivalent of, a, of adultery. God will not accept our divided lives. God is a jealous God. Now, we think, oh, that's a bad character trait. Not if you're God. If you made everything and died for it on a cross, it's yours. You know, there's stuff I'm jealous over. Don't you? I'm jealous over my toothbrush. Don't mess with it. Don't put that in your mouth. That's mine. It's holy for my use only. So you are God's toothbrush. No, please don't remember that. But the scripture says that God is a jealous God. We hate being made to choose between our petty idols and the living God. But the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, is a jealous God who is zealously protective of the love relationship he has with his covenant people. And so in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, God says through Moses, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is on the, in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them and serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You cannot be a polyamorous people. He made us. He entered into covenant with us. He purchased us at the price of his own blood. We want to be moderate in our commitments. But James calls that being adulterous. He calls our, our desire for moderation in our commitments spiritual adultery. We call it being open-minded, but James call us, calls it being double-minded. We prefer compromise over commitment. We prefer negotiated consensus over bold conviction. We prefer never-ending, unproductive dialogue. 
And James's kind of clarity scares us. Brothers and sisters, we cannot have everything and still have Jesus. And that's exactly what I think every one of us struggle with. We do. We want everything and Jesus, just like Mark and Abby. We desire our cherished, unsurrendered, self-defining wounds and Jesus. We want our dysfunctional agendas and Jesus, our unbiblical relationships and Jesus, our idolatrous pleasures and Jesus, our ungoverned passions and Jesus. But James says that is impossible. You have to choose sides. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You mean there's not a middle ground? I can't have a little of both? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Repent! Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. And there's gospel in James. And he will exalt you. The promise is that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Um, and, you know, just you're not allowed to read my journals. But if you were, you would see this is a a pretty continuous story. That sense of being far away from God, what happened? It reminds me of the, the story about uh, the old uh, farming couple who are in their pickup truck and they're driving down a country road and uh, the farmer's behind the steering wheel. Yes, I'm going to tell you a farmer's story. I'm sorry, there are rural routes here, okay? He's, they're driving down, he's behind the steering wheel of the old uh, Ford truck and she's on the other side, as far as she can get away, leaning up against the door on the other side of the truck. And as they're driving along, here comes a little convertible roadster, sports car. And, and as it goes by, there's another couple in that sports car. And the young man is behind the steering wheel, and the young woman is just snuggled up as close to him as she can be, even with that parking brake right in the middle. And the wife of the farmer looks at that, and she turns to her husband, and she says, why don't we do that anymore? And he says, I haven't gone anywhere. When I feel like I'm from, distant from God, he hasn't gone anywhere. I've let other loves, other desires, other things come in and take the place of him, and I have pushed myself up against the passenger side door of the truck. And he says, though, the great news, the good news is if you will draw near to me, I will draw near to you. God offers us his nearness, he pre he pre his present closeness to all of us. He offers us a new beginning, and he does it every Sunday. We get a new chance, a fresh sheet of paper, a new beginning. New every morning are your mercies, O Lord. Right here at the Lord's table for every baptized, born-again follower of Jesus, he says, you can start over here. Not only that, you can have breakfast. Even if we have wandered, even if we have wandered away from him or have backslidden, backslidden, we can come back. 
Jeremiah chapter 3, Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 22. God speaks to his rebellious nation Israel. Return, faith, return, faithless people. I will cure you of backsliding. Oh God, please cure me of backsliding. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, I pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit to hear your word from James this morning and be corrected. Lord, I pray for all of us that great gift. I pray, Lord, from the gift of your spirit, the ability to turn away from my sin, even if it is sin born out of my woundedness, and I pray that for all of us. I pray, Lord, that you would restore and heal us, and Lord, that you would grant health to each one of us in our personal lives, in our relationships with others, and throughout the body of Christ. And I ask it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.